Ezekiel chapter 4. However, we're going to read a verse in Psalm 42, 5 as well. Psalm 42, 5. Ezekiel 4 and then Psalm 42 and verse 5. You have to really understand the hearts of the Jewish people at this time uh, in, in history. Jewish people loved their holy city. Every prophet writes about it. In fact, the book of Lamentations is Jeremiah writing. He's called a weeping prophet because four chapters are all about my city destroyed, overrun, my people scattered, broken about the city. Even Jesus makes comments, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. You know, God hates to judge the people of Israel, but he had to because of their continual sin. And so as you read about prophets, you read all of them talk about Jerusalem in a special way. They know God gave them that land. They know God was in that. They have a very great history. But in this time of history, they were not doing the right thing. I like Psalm 42 too. And when you find that in Ezekiel, Put a finger in one. Stand. It's a custom here to stand for the reading, and I'm going to read to you in Psalm 42, 2. And I can't even uh, find. It's not Psalm 42. It's Psalm 48. I apologize. I'm looking at the verse and said, I've got something wrong with my mind here today. I have a, a abscessed tooth today, so I'm on some antibiotic, and i got inner ear trouble today. So if I fall down, just pick me up. We're a grace church, remember? I want us to be a grace church. We have someone come in and had a struggle with drugs or alcohol. We're going to love on them like we love on each other. For God so loved the world that he gave. So back to Jerusalem. Chapter 48, verse 2. Beautiful for situation, the joy of the whole earth is Mount Zion on the sides of the north, the city of the great king. That's actually a chorus. Have you heard that chorus before? And I'm not going to try and sing it, but it's beautiful for situation, the joy of the whole earth. And you've heard that chorus, maybe, maybe not. But back to Ezekiel now, chapter 5, or 4, excuse me, chapter 5, verse 5, and then we'll be in chapter 4 for our study. Didn't want to read the whole chapter 4. But in 5.5, notice it says here, Thus saith the Lord God, This is Jerusalem. I have set it in the midst of the nations and countries that are round about her. God bless us as we talk about your holy city today. And Lord, one day there'll be a new Jerusalem that comes down from the sky and sets, sets rest on the new heaven and the new earth and, and we'll be able to go in and out. The doors will never shut. What a thing, wonderful thing that's going to be. But Jerusalem is a great city. Still a great city today, but the people there need to be saved. And one day they will be saved. But in the meantime, you've judged and judged and judged the children of Israel. And Lord, we look at that today, and we have to fear for our country that you may judge us as you certainly do in your time. And bless now in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Ezekiel was a priest and a prophet. And there were others in Scripture like that. We think of Jeremiah and Zechariah, both priests and prophets. So he had a dual calling. He was a married man. His name means God strengthened. He prophesied for 22 years, starting at the age of 30. And it's now about 593 B.C. That means 593 years before Christ. 
And he's prophesying. He was part of the second deportation. Daniel was part of the first. In other words, when Babylon came in and crushed Israel, they took a bunch of their wise men, a bunch of their leaders and people they, uh, with them, many of them to be slaves and, and for other reasons, and they took them to Babylon. And so Daniel went in that first group. And we find Ezekiel here going in the second group. And so he's now, uh, he's now prophesying about all this before, it ha- before it's happened. He would see his prophecy be fulfilled in his own lifetime as he's taken captive. We know that Judah, Jerusalem was the capital of Judah. Samaria was the capital of Israel. The kingdom divided after the death of Solomon between Rehoboam and Jeroboam. And that divided kingdom both had their own military and Judah lasted a lot longer than Israel. Israel was defeated in 722 B.C., and it was about 130 years, 586, when Judah was defeated. But here, the, the next several chapters, we'll talk about siege warfare and, and pestilence and them going down in defeat and exile. So God warns his people through Israel. And this is not a warning a week before. This is a warning a year and a couple of months before it would happen. Now, siege warfare was a time-consuming thing. And we'll talk about that in a little bit. But here, in these first 24 chapters of Ezekiel, God talks about Jerusalem's fall. And then there's eight chapters where they talk about other nations that fall. Because every time God uses a sinful nation to judge Israel, God then judges that sinful nation for what they did to Israel. It's, Ironic how that happens. So he'll talk about that. And then the final 16 chapters of Ezekiel are hope for the future. And those are more positive words. But here we find the type of judgment in the first few verses. Chapter 4, verses 1 to 3. He's talking to Ezekiel, Thou son of man, take thee a tile. So he says, get a tile. And most scholars believe this is a big clay square tablet that, of course, they would write on these tablets. So some sort of clay writing tablet. And he gets a big tile, and then he says that he wanted him, verse two, to put a, verse one and two, to put a city on the tile, Jerusalem, a little mini city, and then illustrate siege warfare and set a camp against it and use battering rams and all that. So here Ezekiel's calling as a prophet is to go out in the middle of the street uh, somewhere in downtown Jerusalem and put a big tile and build a little Jerusalem. And then show enemies coming up with ladders, miniature ladders, trying to get over the walls, and the people in the city maybe pouring hot liquids on them, and and these walls finally caving, and and all these battering rams, these big wooden timbers that they bash into the wall till it finally broke. Siege warfare's often lasted for years because the people in the city would not leave the city. Most cities were built on top of rivers. And Hezekiah's tunnel was channeled right through Jerusalem, so they could stay there for a long time. They had granaries, a lot of food stored. And so siege warfare was a difficult and long-lasting challenge. So he says, illustrate that on a big piece of tile as you're in the city and down and downtown in the city. So that's what he does. He gets this big tile, and he writes all this stuff down, and he illustrates all this. Then he says, get a big piece of iron. And I want you to lay down, and I want you to put that piece of iron between your face and Israel. You know, there are expressions in the Bible of God looking upon us with favor. Well, God was angry, so he's not going to look upon us with anger, with favor when he's angry, right? And I'm applying this to Israel and America. But he takes this thing, and he, this big piece of metal, and he puts it between his face and the nation, showing that he can't look at the nation because he's embarrassed by their behavior. 
So this is, this is how he's prophesying. And then we pick up and we find it's called a sign, the siege and all that. It's called a sign uh, to the house of Israel. Then he tells us not only the type of judgment, but the length of judgment. He said, I want you to lay on your left side and I want you to face the northern kingdom. That's the ten tribes, Samaria as the capital. And I want you to lay on your side and I want you to illustrate sins being on the back of your backside or your side and you're laying down and then this tile you put between your face and the northern kingdom. And I want you to do this for 390 days laying down on the ground to illustrate God's judgment against the northern kingdom. And that 390 days, most scholars agree, and there's differences of opinion, and that's okay. None of them are heresy. But scholars believe that's how long Israel was in sin, from Rehoboam bringing idol worship into the temple all the way until 722. That comes out to 390 years. So he's going to lay on his side for 390 days, one day representing a year. And laying on his side, he'd have on his backside something to illustrate sin. Isaiah 53, 6, what a picture of Jesus Christ. It says, the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. Aren't you thankful for grace and mercy? I mean that God would take your sin and put it on Jesus. And that's what he's going to illustrate here as he's got sin on his back. Somehow, I don't know how he illustrates it, he doesn't say but the 390 years, we're not sure, but I gave you one of the ideas, there are many. Then he says, uh, while you're laying there, he'll, he'll tell him some other things to do, but he's, then he says, I want you to lay on your right side for 40 more days to illustrate some sort of sinful time period for the nation of Judah. So now you're laying down for 390 days in the middle of the city. You got this little model he'll illustrate in siege warfare and defeat, and you're laying there for 390 years, days. Well, that'd be a long time. 390 days. Then you roll over and you lay on your right side facing Judah and Jerusalem for 40 days. And you put something between your face and the city so they can't see you. And that's a type of God frowning on their sinful behavior. And this is what's going on. And the total 390 and 40 is 430. And long before this, Israel was in bondage to Egypt for 430 years. That's not how the numbers came about here, but it's just interesting to note that. So we have here, you know, the length and the type of judgment, the length, and now we look at the conditions of judgment. We pick up now in, down in verses 13. Actually, we pick up in verse 9. He says, take some wheat, some barley, some beans, some lentils, some millet, and finches, which finches are rye. You said, mix all this together. And this is going to be your food. And I want you to set aside eight ounces of this. Calls, the scripture calls it meat, but that just means food. Eight ounces of this every day. You ration it. And you lay there all day long, and that's all you eat is that eight ounces, and you have two-thirds of a cup of water there. And you're going to do this for 390 days. A lot of warning. Plenty of time for Israel to repent. They don't. They ignore the prophet. Then he says, I want you to lay there to illustrate this. And look what the prophet says. Pick up now in verse 14 or 13. And the Lord said, this is Yahweh, even thus shall the children of Israel eat their defiled bread among the Gentiles, 
whether I would drive them. Remember Daniel said, he, the Bible says Daniel purposed in his heart he didn't want to defile the, 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 the Lord and, and, and eat things that the king offered him. You got to feel for Ezekiel. God's saying, get all these mixed grains and eat this and cook it and eat it. And he, he knows it's a violation of the law to mix all these grains together. Now we're free to do that today. All right, there's no nothing wrong with it today, but under the law they had these strict, strict rules on mixing things, even material, wool and polyester, you couldn't mix it. It was to teach an, a, a principle of separation. We have to be different from the world. And so God used all those examples. Don't mix wool and nylon. Don't mix, you know, uh, different grains. And all these laws were there to, it's like a hyperbole, an exaggerated way to teach people how to separate. Thank God that's gone now. I break all those rules, you know. I eat all the pork and the shrimp and the lobster and all those bottom feeders, and I, I love every bite of it and pork and all that. And you do too. We're thankful. But the point is, Ezekiel had never done anything like this. And then the Lord says, I want you to cook it over human waste. So you're taking people's poop and you're cooking, you're baking your bread on top, frying your bread on top of people's feces. Now, if that's not disgusting, I don't know what is. Because we have the smelliest bowel movements. I mean, think of it. We eat garlic and we eat meat and all that rotten stuff. We could stink a bathroom up. We know how bad that smells. So he's got to use that as his cooking fuel. And here's where Ezekiel speaks up and says, God, I, I've, I've obeyed the law all my life. Do I have to do all of this? And God gives him a break. He said, you can use manure, cow manure instead. And I'm sure he was relieved. Actually, cow manure doesn't stink very much. You know that because they just eat grass. And it's a very good cooking fuel. And I know you've never tried it, but they have used it throughout for centuries to cook using animal manure. It's a slow-burning thing you can use to cook. And so God says to him, all right, you can do that. He says, Lord, I, I, the Lord tells him to do this stuff. And he says, verse 14, then said I, Ah, oh, Lord God, behold, my soul hath not been polluted uh, far f uh, for, for from my youth even till now I have not eaten that which, is, which dieth of itself or is torn in pieces. Neither came their abominable flesh into my mouth. He said, I I've never done anything like this. I've abided by your law. And then look at God says, Then he said unto me, Lo, I have given thee cow dung then for, for man's dung. So you can use cow manure to cook with. So every day he's going to cook some bread eight ounces of mixed grains, make some bread out of it, and eat that every day in two-thirds of a cup of water. He's going to do it for 390 days to illustrate God's anger about sin. Then 40 more days, he's going to do that. Some believe the 40 is a time in Jeremiah 13 to 17 years under Josiah's leadership and 23 years under Nebuchadnezzar. There's different ways they come up with this. We really don't know. And when I read many, many, many books... Study it and study it and study it. And I've got all these scholars in my library and can't come to a conclusion. I always want to be transparent to you and say, I just don't know. Never teach or preach with authority something that's not clear in Scripture. I don't know how many times I've sat in a conference and heard someone say, bless God, Paul wrote Hebrews. And everybody says, amen. Does the Bible say Paul wrote Hebrews? No, we don't know. I believe he probably did. But here's something we don't know, and that's okay to say you don't know. 
You ever brought your car to a mechanic and he tells you what's wrong with it? And uh, then he fixes it and he didn't fix what's wrong with it. He really wasn't sure. He should have said, I don't know. <laughs> and uh, that's, that's a common answer for me when it comes to cars these days. I don't know. But it's better to say I don't know than to act like you're an authority on every subject. And a mechanic is an authority on repairing an engine, but I know people that will never say they don't know. You ask them an opinion on everything, and they'll just start talking. And you're sitting there thinking, does this guy really knows what he's, know what he's talking about? And sometimes they don't. And, and so I, I think it's fair to just say we don't understand everything, but we accept it. And so... He has to accept this, and we have to accept that we don't know uh, what all this applies to. But he tells him to do this, and he's astonished. He's, he's devastated. He's, he, the, the word abomination means to stink, and he just doesn't want to do any of this, and God says, all right, you can substitute cow manure. Boy, did someone ask you what we preached on today? Be careful how you answer them. Uh, we preached on cow manure. Uh, but, uh, you know, we know this is very difficult, 390 days. Just laying on your side for 390 days had to be tough. And then to roll over and, and lay 40, 40 days on your right side. Now back up, we'll read those passages, chapter 4. He says, uh, verse 4, 4, 4 lie, not, lie thou upon thy left side and lay the iniquity of the house of Israel upon it, according to the number of days thou hast been to lie, and thou shalt bear their iniquity. For I have laid upon thee the years of their iniquity according to the numbers of days, 390 days. Then verse 6, he says, Now lie on your right side for 40 days. There it is. That's how he had to prophesy. Can you imagine how skinny he was after a year and two months of laying on the ground eating eight ounces of mixed grains? Can you imagine how discouraged he was to see that the people just ignore him and they don't take heed to what he's saying? And then we find here the results of judgment. We looked at the type and the length. Now the results. He says, now I want you to shave your head. And I want you to shave all your hair up, and I want you to divide it into three equal parts. So he's got these long strands of hair, and he's got three piles. He said, the first pile, I want you to burn it. The second pile, I want you to take a sword, and I want you to cut it all up. And the third pile, I want you just to throw out in the wind. And then he goes on to prophesy as to why he would, he would do this. Cut it all up. In verse chapter 5, take a razor, shave your head, divide the hair, verse 1. Verse 2, burn the third, scatter the third, and cut up a third, verse 2. Why? Because that's exactly what's going to happen to the people of Israel. The, the siege warfare would cause many to die. The fire would kill a third of their people, along with a third being killed by sword and a third scattering fleeing all over the world. Do you know what? In 19, and, excuse me, 586 B.C., Jews scattered to over 100 countries. And in 1948, they came back from those 100-and-something countries to be a nation. And the Bible says they'll never be moved out again. But they were scattered from 586 until 44. I'm 48, excuse me. 1948. So they were scattered for 2,600 years or so, and now they're back in their land. Praise God for that. But here's, here's how he illustrates that. I, I want you to do this. Look at verse uh, 12. For a third part of thee shall die with pestilence and famine, and they shall be consumed. 
That, along with the fire, would kill a third of the people of the city, 512. 513, um, uh, excuse me, the back half of 512, he says, and I'll scatter a third part into the winds. In the middle of the verse, it says, I'll kill a third part with a sword. So the siege is going to happen. Babylon's already getting ready to come in. They come in, they'll breach the walls, they'll get in there, and they'll kill a third of the people with a sword. A third will die by destruction, famine. Some will be dying even prior to the siege by famine without food. The famine would be terrible. And, and we, we, we recognize God's judgment is very severe. I think about a little poem. Some of you have quoted it. and Part of the poem says, sin will take you where you don't want to go. Keep you long if you want to stay. But my point is it'll take you where you don't want to go. Here's Ezekiel having to violate the law by eating this grain. It's really a type of the consequences of sin. Israel would be famished and have to eat like that. That's a consequence of sin. And when we talk about sin taking us where we don't want to go, I want you to think about this for a minute. How many people do you know that got on drugs? Crack or crystal meth? What's the next step? They can no longer afford it. Then what do they do? Start stealing, sometimes killing. That's how sin progresses. Sin doesn't get easier or lighter. It gets heavier and more severe. And and so because of their sin, they'll be forced to violate the law just to survive. So that's more judgment from God because they're violating the law. They really can't keep the law. There's not enough food. But that's their own fault. It's like the drug addict says, hey, I had to have drugs, so I stole. And you'd say, that's your own fault. You shouldn't have got on drugs. If you didn't get on drugs, you wouldn't be stealing. But sin goes hand in hand. It's a progressive, it's worse progressively in time. And that's why we have to deal with the small sins, as we call them in our life, or they'll get bigger and they'll steamroll us. You know, when you tell one lie, you often have to tell another lie to cover for the first lie. You know how that goes. And so... This is a great illustration of that. Now, I, I think about our country, and, and I don't like to preach politics, but I'm certainly going to say plenty about our country these days. Um, the things that we're doing in our country since the 60s when we took prayer and Bible reading out of the schools. And, and now we kill babies, and people fight and fight and fight to have the right to, to kill babies while they're still in the womb, which is a violation of Scripture. And we give money to lazy people who won't work, and that's a violation of Scripture. Did you know the Bible said those that don't work shouldn't eat? I mean, there's so many people now faking disabilities, getting government checks, too lazy to work. And all that brings reproach on our country, and it angers God. I think of our country's inception. I, I was reading how the British mistakes in the Battle of New Orleans allowed a U.S. force to kill thousands of British soldiers. After the Revolutionary War, George Washington said a chaplain, a Baptist preacher chaplain named John Gaina prayed me to victory. You know, they believed in prayer. During the War of 1812, a tornado killed hundreds of British soldiers and they could not overtake Baltimore, Maryland. It's obvious that God had his hand on our country. Now, we've made mistakes as a country in our history. But God obviously wanted America to be an independent nation, and he supernaturally allowed it to happen. We were outmanned and outgunned, and we became an independent nation. That's the hand of God. Throughout our history, we've seen things with a hand of God. And in Israel's history, we've seen the hand of God so many times. They'll fall, they'll be prisoners, they'll repent and get right, God will deliver them. But this is a time where God's fed up with Israel. And bam, and they've been waiting 
2,600 plus years for God to bless them. And the big blessing is going to come when they get saved, 144,000 of them. But I think about all the things our country could talk about in the past, and I'm afraid now we're going to see the cursings of the future start to, as, as, as God prepares for future events, God's already prepared, but I mean as he begins to un, unveil what's going to happen. First of all, we're not mentioned in Scripture. Many, many nations are, and Israel is. The Bible said none will oppose Israel. I mean, not, you can tell I'm brain today. None will stand with Israel. In other words, there's not one nation, not America, not anyone who stands with Israel in the last day. And I'm not talking about Israel now. This passage is about Israel and Judah, but I'm talking about America. The one thing that's kept us afloat for longer than the 60s is the fact that we're still good to Israel. I'll bless them that bless Israel. I'll curse them that don't. And once the rapture takes place, what do you think this place is going to be like? America is not going to be a friend of Israel's. But I want you to notice something here. In chapter, um, chapter four, um, or chapter five, <laughs> I'm lost. Um, verse 511, Wherefore, as I live, saith the Lord God, surely because thou hast defiled my sanctuaries with detestable things and with all the abominations, therefore will I also dis dis diminish thee. Look at verse 14. Moreover, I will make thee waste and a reproach among the nations that are round about thee in the sight of all that pass by. I want you to think about that. God said it. Has it happened? Is Israel a reproach to all of her neighbors? Yes. Everyone hates Israel. All the nations around her hate her. When I was there on a trip, I thought, well, Jordan's kind of at peace with Israel. No, they're not. We're walking on the Temple Mount, and the Jewish guide's explaining things to us, and this Jordanian soldier with a rifle starts threatening him. And I'm thinking, he's not even 100 yards from the guy comes over and starts screaming at him. They hate the Jews. All the Arab nations hate the Jews. And guess what? The whole world hates the Jews. Anti-Semitism's a problem all the time. Think of, think of Europe. Think of Hitler. Think of all the Russian czars and all the people that have been bad to these people. It's a fulfillment of what God said. Look what he says again. I will make thee waste and, and a reproach among the nations. Everybody's going to hate you because of your sin. Now, we know the devil loves this. He's perfectly happy to cooperate with this because he hates the Jews because Jesus was a Jew. And he knows Jesus is coming back, or he reads it, but he doesn't understand it all. But the fact of the matter is, Israel has been a reproach. Israel is hated by everyone just because they're Jews, and no one can even tell you why everybody hates them. Think of that. They were hated and despised in Germany because they're good businessmen. There's always a reason, but the devil's behind it. But God has allowed for it to bring Israel to her knees. And it's how many years? 2,600, 593 in 2021. So I guess 20, what, you know, almost, I mean, you know how much, you can do the math. But all these years are hated. All these years are hated. They have a little sliver of land and everybody hates them. And the world hates them. Even European countries still bash Israel. It's part of God's judgment. And you know what? Reproach is a sin to any people, the Bible says. And we're losing our respect around the world because of our sin. Did you know there's Christian people all around the world? Did you know there's more Christians in China than America? 
not per capita, but uh, the total amount of Christians. My kids were there, and my son Zach said, Dad, those Chinese Christians are really sold out for God. They'll stand up in church and cry, thank you for telling me about Jesus, and they have a tough time living for God with the underground church. And it's amazing how much persecution there, but persecution strengthens the family of God. And more Chinese are saved, they have more Christians than we have. And per capita, Korea has, South Korea has more Christians per capita than us. But these Christians are disappointed in America. We used to be a light on a hill and we had morals. And when we fought wars, it was for a just cause. And, and, and when we, we did things, made big decisions, the whole world would watch us and think, well, we want to be like America. We were the leader in the world and now we're not. Because our morals have failed. And because the Bible said God will judge nations, I'm here to say to you today, I'm not going to lay down for 390 days. I'm not going to lay down for 39 minutes, but I'm telling you, America is going to be judged by God. Our better days are behind us. I, I was reading about the, the debt, and each taxpaying American would have to pay $276,000 to pay off our deficit. We owe it all to China, most of it to China, other countries too, but think of that. Think of it. Eventually, we're going to be like Greece. We don't. We can't print money fast enough. Our economy is in terrible shape because of inflation. Printing money causes inflation. And what are we going to do in 20 or 30 years? Your dollar is going to be worthless. Let me tell you this. In my wife, when my wife was in Okinawa, her family would get 385 uh, uh, yen to the dollar. When I left Okinawa 20 years ago, 22 years ago we were getting 86 cents to the dollar. Why? The dollar is going down, down, down in value. And our money system will fail. And the whole world's money system will fail. And to buy groceries, you're going to have to go in and have your, your, your chip, which will no longer be in the card, to get your groceries. Thank God we're raptured. Don't have to worry. It'll be in your hand or forehead. You'll scan that. And that microchip will allow you to buy groceries. It'll go come from your account. That's all ready to go right now. Jesus is coming. When we rapture the church and he comes back, he's going to come back angry. He's coming back to set up a judgment of the whole world and to set up a new kingdom. And he's not going to be happy. He's not going to be lowly riding on a, a donkey. He's going to be king of kings and lord of lords and come on a war horse and defeat the enemies of God. And America is going to be one of the enemies that will go down in defeat because we're not going to support Israel. We're going to be against Israel at that time. Take the church out. Who's left? So seven years later, we'll be anti-Israel. We'll be talking about the tabernacle and how they're going to build one. It'll be ready by mid-trib. They could probably build it in three and a half years, but if they start on it now, I'm going to be saying, oh man, Jesus is coming. <laughs> Because the signs are there. What does America need to do? What do we need to do? Look at 2 Peter chapter 3. And then I'll, I'll close with a couple of thoughts. Hebrews, 2 Peter chapter 3, and I am in the right book, I think, this time. Verse 4. It says, in saying where... Pick up in verse 3. 3.3, 3, 2 Peter 3.3. 3. Knowing this, that there shall come in the last days scoffers walking after their own lust, and saying, where is the promise of His coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. For this they are willingly ignorant that God made the heavens and the earth. I'm paraphrasing. And verse 6, they're ignorant also 
of the worldwide flood. People are ignorant about the Lord's coming. They're ignorant about the flood. And they're willingly ignorant about creation. That's why we see all these secular so-called scientists tell us the world's billions of years old. They, they don't believe God is part of the equation. They believe an accident happened and it all fell into place like we built this building, remember, with dynamite and all the materials. And you blew it up, it all fell in place, right? That's what, they, that's what they're teaching. They're willingly ignorant. Their conscience tells them there's a God. John 1.9 says, All men are born with an inner light. The grace of God, Titus says, hath appeared to all men. When someone's born into this world as a little kid, they believe in God as they're, as they're young and their conscience is not yet defiled. They come, become a, to an age of accountability. We're not sure when that is, but all of a sudden they decide, well, I'd rather live my own life and not worry about my conscience. And their conscience becomes seared or defiled. And so this is what happens. We, we don't realize that that God's given us a chance. And here, are, here they become willingly ignorant. That's why scientists push so hard against the creation and against the worldwide flood evidence. We find layers in the earth's crust with dinosaur tracks and human tracks next to each other. They won't tell you that. But the dinosaurs were created when everything else was created. They're mentioned in two chapters in Job. They were aboard the ark. They died in the area of Mount Ararat, but... They couldn't survive the cold conditions, but there were dinosaurs here, but they're not millions of years old. I always laugh because Discovery Channel will say the tortoise is 10 million years old, and then you go to the National Geographic, and they say it's 100 million years old, and you're like, come on, you can't even get together on this. Mankind's probably six to 7,000 years old, and the Grand Canyon is a result of a massive worldwide flood. There's plenty of evidence, but there's no layers of the earth crust where you'll find complete skeletal remains of any transitional form. You'll find dinosaurs and monkeys and man, but you won't find Neanderthals or monkey men or anything else because God created this earth and he created everything in that week of creation. And we didn't come from monkey. You heard about the boy, his mom and dad were arguing. He went to his uh, dad and said, Dad, Mom said we... We came from monkey, and you say we came from God. He said, well, my side of the family did come from God. Yeah, but, but the fact of the matter is, it's clear in Scripture that God's angry with any nation that is a reproach to him. And America right now is a disappointment to God. So what do we do, Pastor, in closing? I'll tell you what we do. And I realize this morning's message maybe isn't as practical as we'd like it to be, but here's the practical application. Our responsibility is not to win political arguments. Our responsibility is not to rebuke people, correct people, humiliate people, embarrass people. Our responsibility is to show love and grace and mercy to all the sinners around us. Be the best neighbor you can be. Don't fight with the neighbors. I heard about a lady that would fight with a neighbor all day long to get in practice and get ready for her husband coming home. Get along with your neighbors. You be the difference maker. You say they're rude. Don't you be rude. Had a neighborhood squabble in my neighborhood. Some people say the neighbor's driveway is four inches on their property. And the people who are living in the house weren't even the ones that built it. And there's an argument over four inches. A Christian should say, I'm not worried about the four inches. You want me to cut part of my driveway off the saw? Cut it off. Or if the other people are Christians, they should say, don't worry about the four inches. 
Don't be like the world. What shall it profit you if you gain the whole world and lose your own soul? And what's it going to profit you if you gain all kinds of money and materialistic things and offend one person? We're not to offend one weak one or little one in our walk with God. Get along with your neighbors. Be the nicest, kindest neighbor. When the new people move in, you say, oh, no, they're Muslims. I'm not going to speak to them. Bring them some cookies. And when some Mexicans move into your neighborhood, don't go down and get in an argument over illegal immigration. Bring them something to eat and give them Jesus. Our responsibility is clear. To share the love of Jesus with everyone. Not to be a respecter of persons. Be the best employee. When you go to work, people at work should say you're a good employee. You never cause trouble. You don't argue. You don't bicker. You don't complain. You're just sweet and kind all the time. That's the testimony of someone who walks with God. If your reputation is to be difficult where you work, you're a bad testimony. Your neighbors, your relatives, your friends, we call it frangelism. Friends, relatives, associates, and neighbors. We are supposed to win our friends, relatives, associates, and neighbors. When you go in a store and you get up in that line, that lady ought to remember, boy, this is the sweetest, kindest person. One time I went in Subway and I was real nice to a lady, and the next time I went in there, I said, you're Dan, aren't you? And I said, yeah, how do you know that? Because you were nice to me. I thought, you know, that's sad. I'm sure I've been rude to plenty of people in my life. Okay, I'm not saying I'm on a pedestal here, all right? But people should recognize your grace and kindness and mercy in the business world, at work, in the neighborhood. You need to be a difference maker. And when Jesus takes us out, we can hear him say, well done. Folks, we have a world to reach. And I'm not going to help anybody win in a political argument. Oh, I'd like to argue. I'd like to go to Joe Biden and say, what's wrong with you? you know, what, what, what are you thinking? You're passing legislation that's hurtful to people's freedoms, you know. But I have to pray for Joe Biden. Nowhere in Scripture am I told to criticize him. The Bible says, speak not evil of dignitaries. Pray for your leaders. I find it easier to pray, pray for our policemen than to do my president sometimes. But I am supposed to be a prayer warrior for our country, for your neighbors, your friends, your relatives and associates. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word, God. And Lord, this is a very exciting message like Easter Sunday morning when we're talking about the resurrection. This is kind of a convicting message, Lord, and I know that. And it's what you laid on my heart because we need to understand that you do judge nations. You're going to judge America, but you also chasten your own children, and you're going to whip us if we don't live right and please you in everything we say and do. Bless now. We just pray in Jesus' name. Amen.